I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Everyone, welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown webinar. And today we are talking with Assembly Member Yulene New. Yulene uh, represents District 65 in Lower Manhattan. And today we're going to be talking about all of the things that are probably top of mind for a lot of us. Welcome, Yulene. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So I'm just going to jump in. I know... <laughs> What must be top of mind for a lot of us on this call are the protests that are happening all across the country and particularly here in New York. I imagine that there are any number of protests in your district. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak more broadly about your thoughts about it, your responses to it, um, anything that you could share with us. Uh, for folks who don't know who I am, <laughs> uh, my name is Yuli New. I actually represent uh, Lower Manhattan. Um, my district is uh, Chinatown, the, uh, the Lower East Side, the Financial District, and South Street Seaport. So a lot of the protests have been in my area, obviously, because Wabiki is in my district, and so is um, the uh, courts, and so are uh, the um, stock exchange and other symbols of uh, finance. And so <laughs> I think that it's been important to see some of the things that have been going on um, all around America and kind of put it into context, as well as uh, see some of the things that uh, have been going on in my district um, to put things into context, I guess, about some of the complexities and the feelings that everybody has. And uh, I think that it's really important that we are talking about it. And I think that it's really important that we are um, discussing some of the things that we came here to talk about um, are experiencing things a little bit differently um, here in lower Manhattan because um, so many folks have had such a hard time with COVID. Um, and we can't discuss uh, some of the reactions without also discussing some of the things that folks had to go through during this time that kind of uh, made it so that things kind of bubbled to the top, right? And I think um, right now in America, we can see that there's been a lot of hurt and anger and hatred and and I think that it's been it's been very tense for a long time now. And I think that we are all feeling the same pain, right? I think that across the board, we're feeling the same pain, the justified rage at the racist violence that has taken the lives of so many people, um, including, of course, George Floyd, uh, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, um, Eric Garner, Trayvon Martin, and so many others. And I think that we have to say their names. Like we have to say their names to make sure that people recognize that, you know, America has defined our bodies, you know, and, and in a way told us how much we're worth. <laughs> um, and I think that the horror at an ongoing pandemic where there are more than 24,000 New Yorkers who have lost their lives and, 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 Millions have filed for unemployment and um, the frustration from the fact that the, a disproportionate number of these deaths and jobs, uh, you know, who are lost are in our communities of color, um, the anger at our president and, um, you know, stoking the like fires of division and a top to bottom failure by so many of our government entities and executives and leaders. And I think that you know, this anxiety about our city and the local businesses and things that are impacted and the family struggling, like it just, it's all together, you know? And, and I think that everybody's anxious and everybody's hurting right now. And I think that we're feeling it every day and, and we're not wrong to feel it. 
and we're um, we have to be very aware that it's okay to be angry, to be sad, to be hurt. Um, New Yorkers lost so much, and, and we saw another man die. And I think that it's really easy to become depressed and anxious and hurt right now. And I know that you know folks don't feel it now, but I think that I think that we can survive this. I think that we can get through and rebuild. And I don't know. I saw this. Uh, I'm known for my dank memes, but I saw this post on Instagram that basically said, like, maybe it's not that, you know, 2020 is canceled. Maybe it's just that it's the most important time for us to see things that we need to change. And and that kind of hit me a little bit because I feel like right now, all of the things that we're talking about is shining a light on the injustices and the huge uh, disparities within our system that we have to change. And I yeah. think it's really a huge time right now. And we have to, um, because our systems are not, like I, I always say this, but our systems aren't broken. They're just designed the way to to hurt particular communities and help. So you, I, I want to ask you this because, you know, you are the only Asian American female politician in the legislature. You represent Chinatown and, I'm, and there are obviously a number of Asian Americans on this phone call. I'm wondering if you could speak both about you know, ways in which the Asian American community can be in solidarity with the Black community. And then maybe also talk a little bit about the ways in which we as an Asian American community need to interrogate our own anti-Blackness and white supremacist ideas. We are having these conversations because we we have experienced an uptick in anti-Asian discrimination and anti-Asian, you know, sentiment and and there's been a lot of folks who've been talking about um, how our communities have been treated, but there's one thing that our community has not been always experiencing that the Black community has been experiencing since, you know, since slavery, which is the policing aspect of things and the violence in policing towards their bodies and towards their, you know, skin color. And I think that it's really interesting um, to kind of even have anybody uh try to not see that and i and 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 you know i think that there's been a lot of dialogue between my generation and my parents generation right now about what it is to be an immigrant to face discrimination every day to um have worked so hard and you know know that there is uh you know, this perpetual foreigner syndrome and there's a minority myth. And then there's also, you know, all these other stereotypes that we have to deal with, but to not uh, talk about anti-blackness and our own uh, community's silence on so many different uh, issues, including this one <laughs> um, is, is to not, talk about and still silence uh, the issues, you know? And I think that it's, it's, a, it, it's a really important thing to recognize right now. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm watching as these young, young kids are having these dialogues with their parents right now. Um, mm -hmm. And folks are actually having these discussions. And, you know, I still remember that a lot of, you know, my, my grandma is the person that's closest to me. And like, I, I talk about her a lot, but you know, I even wear, you know, her jade around my neck. And I think that one of the things that I have always been very cognizant of was like, you know, her perception of, um, you know, of, of 
different ethnic groups and different races has uh, always been one that we had to discuss, right? And one that I oftentimes would find myself like feeling like, you know, aversion to, right? And and a lot of times I would just be like, why, why is it that she has to say something like that? Why is it that like, you know, we can't, you know, just talk her into like being less like, you know, horrible about some of her perspectives on how people look or should act or whatever. And and it was just such a strange thing. But I then I realized like later on when I was a lot older, I was like, oh, because you know, her interactions with American culture, with black people, with brown people, with you know, different ethnicities has been so small and it's usually from the television it's usually from you know tv and the stereotypes that people want us to ingest about one another and it's about you know this internalized oppression and it's about not like and swallowing some of the things that the you know larger systemic government and uh, tv and media want us to swallow right and they want us to pick communities against one another they want us to be scared of fighting with one another and in solidarity with one another because you know it's it's so easy and fragile to to it is so easy to break those connections right and I think that by by you know not having those discussions and so I think that it's important that you know as we're talking about all of these different things we're talking about understanding where different generations are coming from and where everybody's perspectives are coming from and also understanding like what internalized oppression looks like and um, also tapping into how understanding that can also change the dialogue. Um, And I think that, you know, once I talked to her about like, asked her in questions about why she's felt a certain way, like what it was that, you know, she thought was happening really changed our dialogue, you know, and I think that, you know, we uh, have to help each other to educate one another in within our own communities and within our own uh, families right now, uh, in order to also change the larger dialogue for our city, for our state, for our country. And I think that it's really important that uh, people are facing um, some of these, uh, you know, issues head on to the people that they love the most and the people that they're closest with. Because even if we have a particular perspective that, you know, like I firmly believe that if we are not the ones being desperately policed and harmed, like we should be putting our bodies in front of our um, black and brown friends, but other people don't believe that. You know, they, they want to say like, well, we've been harmed too. You know, like mm-hmm. they want to say that um, our communities were hit hard too. And I think that that buys into the silence and the anti-Blackness that we um, are, are seeing all across the country. Let me ask you a question. I'd just be curious to what you respond as like a public figure. Um, you know, one thing that's really been weighing heavy on my heart is on the one hand, very much being aligned with the protests against police brutality and and wanting to be in the street. And on the other hand, like we are in a, the middle of a public health crisis and we have spent the last two and a half months quarantining it and isolating in place. And so I guess I'm just curious, how how do you thread that needle? Um, so for me, because I also do a lot of food delivery, I do a lot of um, PPE delivery and things like that. I 
Um, and, you know, I feel very much that we need to also be protesting and also be speaking up about, you know, all of the different systemic issues that have been plaguing our society for centuries. I think that it's really important that we are um, having those discussions and raising these issues and also, you know, making sure that we are we are understanding what our um, communities are going through right now. I think that it's really important to to acknowledge that we have a public health crisis and also be safe in the fact that we should um, still be marching, you know, relatively socially distanced. We should be making sure that everybody's wearing masks. Um, everybody should be, you know, wearing gloves if they can, um, making sure that folks um, have the resources. Uh, I've been passing out PPEs um, when uh, I've been um, out and organizing and or whatnot. And I, I've been, you know, making sure that folks have, uh, you know, masks. And I've been, you know, making sure that, um, you know, there are you know, my friends who have uh, food trucks or whatever, they're passing out PPEs as well and water and food. And I think that it's really important that, you know, people are um, staying safe and staying healthy during this time. I think what's not healthy is um, the police like trapping folks on the Manhattan Bridge and kettling them um, in close proximity for a long period of time. I think that, you know, as long as people are outside moving and keeping distanced, because um, as far as I've seen, and I can, and you know, like you could see the video on my Facebook where a lot of people are marching together, but they're still um, distanced and, you know, widespread. So unless there are people who know each other or have been, you know, in contact with one another already, like they try to stay a little bit more distanced. And I think that that's been really respectful of one another and also um, adhering to you know, health standards and safety. And I think that, you know, I think it's really important that we, um, you know, keep each other safe in this time. Um, and, you know, I think that what's, you know, unsafe is, uh, you know, putting each other's health at risk um, and, you know, having people drive their cars into bodies. You know, I think that that's very unsafe. Last question before I open it up to the group here. And so for the folks who are listening in, feel free to drop your questions into the chat and um, I'll try to get it to as many as possible. You first caught my attention because, you know, you have um, been known for your very impassioned speeches on the floor. And I'm wondering, you know, as a relatively young person, as a woman of color, how do you find it in yourself to speak truth to power in a way that you do? I mean, it's, it, it's inspiring and courageous to watch. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if I don't know if I I don't inspire myself, but I definitely feel like um, you know it's it's hard to uh, always be kind of a little bit of a caught in a space where you know it's either you speak out or nobody speaks out, and I think that it's um, hard sometimes when I think that tough to uh, you know be one of the only and a first and like it's it's lonely in that position and I think that a lot of times you know my community hasn't had particular type of representation and um, I feel it I feel um, the weight of it and I think that uh, especially you know right now I don't think any leader knows how exactly to unpack all the things that are going on right now um, as they're happening consecutively and simultaneously, you know? I think that we're dealing with so many different things that um, if on their own, they're already difficult to handle. Also, 
altogether, they're even more difficult to handle and um, wrap your mind around and speak out about. And so I think that, you know, I have to often um, really think about uh, what's going on with my uh, residents here in lower Manhattan, but also community at large, um, and then also look at what's good for the state and um, see what's also going to impact our country as a whole. And, and I think that one of the biggest things that I always try to think about is how come back from hurt and pain and trauma. And I think that that part of it is complex. And I think, you know, there are so many different answers and so many different thoughts and so many different things that I have to kind of sort through. And I, I try to just sort it through with people. And so conversations like this one are helpful. And I think that, you know, talking to people and listening to people is so important. Um, I don't think that there's a single thing that I've ever said on the floor or written inside of a bill or spoken up about against anything that didn't come from my community and my district and the folks that I represent, you know? And I think that that's really important. And so one of the things that I always try to keep in mind is what it is to be a public servant. And so I've personally, it's not really about like, oh, I'm gonna make a speech today that will be, you know, a certain way, but I think that it's really important that while I'm sitting here, while I'm in this seat, that I am serving all of my capacity, right, to make sure that my community has a voice and that we have the resources that we need and that as uh, a first of some things um, and as the only of some things to make sure that I'm paving a path to um, make sure that there's a, a pipeline for me to not be an only or a first. So um, I actually, I lied. I have one more question and then I have a question coming in from Felix. Um, the question I have is you and I have spoken a little bit about the amount of funding that is given to Asian Americans as compared to other groups. And I'm wondering if you could speak about that and the disproportionate uh, funding. I gotta talk about the money. For folks who um, you know are listening in and who will listen in, I think that one of the things that um, people don't realize is how important representation is. And this is one of the things that makes it so that it's so important to have representation. You know, I, I, I put this out by example, and I also put this out because it's so important, but um, so Asian Americans uh, make up about like 13%, maybe more than, because there's so many of us that are undocumented, but 13% of the state's population, right? And yet we have less than 2% of the representation. And I think that it's so important to acknowledge this and to talk about what that means for us, because until I was elected, Asian Americans, the word Asian Americans has never been in our New York state budget. And that is incredibly, insane. <laughs> and until I was elected, there was only ever one seat in the New York State Legislature that was occupied by an Asian American. And I think that that is so difficult for folks to grasp because, you know, we have such a large percentage of the population and yet we have so little representation. So one would think that the state would still um, make sure that our communities have resources. Asian Americans in New York City are the most impoverished ethnic group in the entire state. And we also have the least access and the least uh, 
locations and uh, you know the least uh, amount of people uh, accessing social benefits. Mm-hmm. And so people don't realize that we take up the least amount of resources and yet we're the most impoverished group. And yet we also don't get the resources in our entire state budget. And so until I was elected, until I pointed it out, and by the way, even after I pointed it out, we still only got $300,000 inside of a $174 billion budget. This is what representation can do for us, um, is that we can actually have a much louder voice and we can actually have our issues at the table and it makes sure that we have backup, you know, when we are speaking out. Because Ron couldn't do it alone. You know, Grace Man couldn't do it alone. Like it had to be, you know, with more people and I think that this is the first time that the disaggregation bill was finally passed um, in both the Senate and the Assembly. And I think it's so important that we acknowledge that. It was still vetoed by the governor, but it passed both the Assembly and the Senate for the first time. And uh, we need to make sure that we continue to have representation in order to raise up our issues and to fight for the things that we need for our community to be represented. I mean, just language access alone is something that is preventing people from getting the services that they need. This is not really like the same thing, but it's also very, very relevant. And it's also telling of how representation is so important because let's talk about women in the legislature, right? There's so few women in the legislature now, but before there was even fewer, like we have more now than ever. And it's really important to acknowledge that and the change that it has brought onto the legislature. We have a sexual harassment working group. There's people like talking about the issues that pertain to women. Um, We have a women's caucus, like people are actually discussing things bipartisan about what women need in legislature. And when Kathy Nolan, for example, was first elected, there were no women's restrooms in the Capitol. She's still a sitting legislator. Like that's mind boggling. People think like, oh, it's so long ago, but it's not that long ago. It's, it's like very recent that people didn't even think that women could be legislators. And now we have women who are making sure that we are taking the taxes off of tampons. All right. Linda Rosenthal, that we have regulations on donor breast milk. Thank you, Mikhail Salashes, you know, that we have, you know, paid family leave, that we are, you know, doing things that will make it so that we're impacting um, our families day to day. And you would think that folks would have always thought about how important it is to look at healthcare for women, look at, you know, all of these different ways to like make sure that people are getting the, the uh, care that they need on um, the healthcare legislation that's needed, like, you know, all of these different considerations. Yulene, <laughs> if I had the nickel for every time I was said, like, you wouldn't think that people would. I'd have a lot to donate to your campaign. I'm, a, I'm actually going to call my friend Felix Lamb. Oh, hi, Felix. Hi. <laughs> It's very nice to meet you, and thank you uh, for for talking to us today. I'm actually don't, I don't live in your district. I live in uh, Crown Heights, um, but and I'm actually a recent New Yorker as well. Uh, just moved here two years ago from uh, from Los Angeles. But actually, my, my my parents, yeah, my parents actually came to New York when they as refugees in '78, uh, and lived not far from here in Crown Heights. And and I actually have a lot of family still here in New York, um, and a cousin who actually owns a bondi shop. Uh, in the Lower East Side. So lots of connections in New York. But yeah, so I just want to thank you um, for speaking and did want to hear a bit from you about how um, you and uh, other assembly men and women and the state Senate uh, think sure. that you guys can address racism um, and police brutality and hold police accountable um, and what bills you're considering and how the sure. community can support um, support 
those bills? Yeah, so right now, um, the biggest one that's being talked about, obviously, is um, the repeal of 50A. For folks who don't know what it is, it's basically a, um, a law that was put into place to basically protect the um, records of police officers. And I think that it's really important that we repeal that because a lot of times you know, when, when people are talking about those bad apples, quote unquote, which I think that's not just about bad apples, but I think that it's really important that um, you know we are holding folks accountable who have a pattern of abuse or of discrimination or of racism or of um, taking advantage of their power. Um, and I think that it's really important that we do that. And there's been a big outcry from the public for it now. And I've, I've obviously, you know, I've been on the bill for years and years. Um, and I think that it's a really important one. Um, another one that we're looking at, and I actually, you know what, my staff can actually put on here. Um, there is a link to my Instagram um, that will show you all of the bills that our uh, members of the Black, Puerto Rican, Hispanic, and Asian Legislative Caucus has uh, put onto a list of things that you know, we really support. Um, I'm the parliamentarian on the executive board there, and I think that it's really important that um, you know, folks can see the entire list to know what it is that you know, we're looking at legislatively. Um, and you know, I, I wanna also um, say that it's really important what you just said about like, what are we gonna do about racism? Because the things that we're legislating aren't like ending racism. It's just putting together a, a list of laws and regulations that will um, make it so that certain behaviors and certain oversights and certain regulations are changed. But I think that it makes it so that there are certain things that will help to help us to identify um, and to uh, discourage certain kinds of um, things that are going on, but it doesn't at all end racism. <laughs> you know? I think that that's something that we have to acknowledge is like very systemic within within everything, and so um, and we have to change everything as a whole. And there's a lot of things that you know we need to look at. So like one of the biggest things. So number two on this list is a uh, false 911 complaints. <laughs> and as we know, the Karens of the world um, have made that one a thing. And I think that we need to actually pass that bill. It's held by Assemblymember Ortiz. Um, there's the other one about the Office of the Special Prosecutor, making sure that across the board, um, uh, sentencing is held at the same level, uh, as we saw with the different uh, boroughs, people were being sentenced differently. Um, and I think that that's really important. And I think that there's another one called the Police Stat Act. Um, I can give you the numbers for all of these different things, actually. And Eileen, I'll, I'll send this out afterwards to folks who've been on the call. Yeah, and so I don't want to keep on going through all of them and take a, all the time and oxygen in this room, but I think that it's really important that we uh, know that right now there is um, a body within our legislative our legislative body that is fighting to make sure that our communities of color have a agenda that we care about. And so um, this is something that I hope people will fight for on the ground and uh, will look at all, through all the bills and know exactly what we're doing and why we're doing it and help us to be able to spread the word and help people to understand why these regulations and rules changes are so important. Mm -hmm. I would be remiss as a fundraiser if I didn't point out the fact that uh, your team put a link to donate to your campaign in the chat. So I know you are running a race um, and need 
to raise money and you're doing it grassroots style with small donations. So any little bit helps. Lucia, can I call on you to ask your question? So I actually, um, originally, like I had questions about uh, organizing for the Asian American community. Uh, some of the stats that you pointed out are really jarring. The fact that um, we make up 13% of this state, yet we take up the, the smallest amount of resources. I actually am also in your district. <laughs> so um, I live right here on Wall Street. Um, Don't forget to vote. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Got my ballot ready. But um, I think something that you mentioned is really jarring in that, like our community, they don't want to, you know, stand up or speak up for themselves. And we clearly need more representation. Uh, like, how do we get, um, how do we organize, right? Like, how do we organize ourselves? How do we bring these, um, these issues to attention? Also, like, what kind of prompted you to, to be like, you know what, I'm not going to stay quiet anymore. I need to, I need to stand up. There's a lot of different things in that, those questions, actually. I know. <laughs> That's very layered. Good job. Um, so one of the things that I think is uh, so, so important about the, 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 the representation piece is that I always talk about this, but a lot of people don't realize, you know, you know seeing is believing, right? Like I say mm -hmm. that a lot. And I was lucky enough to have incredible mentors. Um, and I think that one of the things that we can do to build a pipeline is to actually mentor one another. And for me, like I, I have, I surround myself with all of these young people, all of these like amazing young people that I think are smarter than me, more ambitious than me, will change so many more things than me. And I think that it's really important that I do that because um, my mentors have taught me that that is um, something that they also um, adhere to, right? So I, I actually uh, grew up uh, you know, in, so my immigrant family, my immigrant story is that my parents came here, um, decided that they were going to pick the most racist place on earth and then put us there. So they, <laughs> they, they, they immigrated to Moscow, Idaho, which is right outside of Coeur d'Alene. And right, so right out of Spokompton, right? Like right, right next to it. <laughs> and so we call it Spokane, but it's a spoke, it's, we call it Spokompton because it's like, it, everybody does. It's just like the funniest thing, but it's like, um, it's a, it's a little town inside of Idaho that is so incredibly racist, right? That's where the neo-Nazis and the KKK are based, um, wow. right inside of Coeur d'Alene. And so um, it is really funny because my parents then moved us to Beaverton, Oregon, and then to El Paso, Texas, and then to Vancouver, Washington. Yeah, so like we moved around a lot because of my dad's education. And, you know, it, it's based off of just opportunity and education. And uh, my parents wish for us to have some upward mobility, you know, uh, mm -hmm. and I think that, you know, this is uh, a very typical immigrant story, I think, in a lot of ways. I you totally know? get you. I lived in seven different states yeah. myself. So yeah, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> Exactly. And so, you know, I went to three different schools for first grade. It was, it was traumatizing, but, but for my parents, um, you know, it was, you know, out of necessity. And, but for me, what, what changed and what I now, you know, when you look back hindsight's 2020, and of course, like the things that you, that impacted you also like kind of like shine bright, like a little beacon. Right. And, um, and, and the pivotal moments that I had put out for me to like, see what, was so different about certain representation is that in Texas, when I was in elementary school, um, Ann Richards was the governor. And that was the first time that I ever saw that a woman could be a governor of a state and of a state like Texas, you know? And, and it was incredible to meet her. I was a Richards reader, 
you know, literature reader. And so <laughs> this was her reading program was called for elementary school kids. And, and she came to our school and she was so tiny and I didn't have to look <laughs> up to her like that, you know, and I was just like, she's the governor, you know, it was, it was, it, it broke so many of the stereotypes and the molds and the things that we internalize about like, you know, the big, tall, huge, white, charismatic man, old person that like, you know, was like, you know, was, um, was a older person that was uh, a, 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 a governor, you know, like, and, and, and I saw that and I was like, oh, you could be a funny, like punchy, edgy woman and be a governor. You know, and then when my parents moved us to uh, Vancouver and then I went to school in Olympia um, and I took a legislative internship, the governor at the time was Gary Locke um, in Washington State, the first Asian American to become governor in our entire nation. And to me, I already saw that. And so I knew it was possible. I knew it wasn't happening here, but <laughs> I knew that it was possible. Um, and so seeing is believing and then understanding that there are things that we can change and and make a difference in and uh it and and actually once we have representation we can uh, be at the table at like i think that is so important and for me it was it was always part of the plan to be part of what people see so that people can believe in that change and for me, like, I never wanted to be an elected. That's a whole nother question. But I never actually wanted to yeah. be an elected. I, I've always been um, an advocate, right? So um, my entire life, I've been a anti-poverty advocate. I've been an advocate for our community. We, we, I've been um, trying to make sure that folks um, are, uh, you know, given a voice. And I always felt like, you know, after I understood how the legislature worked, I felt like my plan and my purpose was to make sure that people understood that there's no big secret to government, that um, there's just a lot of people who are in power right now who don't want you to know that there's no big secret to government, that we should be able to access it, that we should be able to make sure that, you know, we, we could demand transparency and access for everybody, right? And my hope is to always be, and still is, to become obsolete, like to be um, somebody who is replaceable and um, completely um, not necessary anymore because I think that for me it's really important that we have um, folks who are ready and, um, and, and understand that government uh, can be changed and are ready to make that change. And um, you know, what drove me to run, obviously, uh, you know, are a whole bunch of different things, but um, my, my boss at the time was Assemblymember Ron Kim. I was Ron's chief of staff and Ron was the only Assemblymember who was of Asian descent in the entire New York State Legislature at the time. He was the first Korean American to win any office in all of New York. Um, he's still the only Korean American in uh, all of New York to have a seat. And I think that it's really important um, that, uh, you know, when I, <laughs> when I talk about him to, to say that because he's an incredible person and he's somebody who, uh, you know, I work very well with and somebody who I see as a, a a leader and a mentor, as well as a partner. And I think that, you know, when, when he first uh, won office, and I kid you not, this is inauguration day, and a lot of people know this story because we talked about it a lot, but um, inauguration day, we walked into the chambers and I was so proud. I was like, this is like so amazing. We're gonna like change everything. It's gonna be great. And 
this like dude runs up to him he's still our colleagues but he, he like runs up to him and he's just like hey uh do you know how to dance gangnam style and uh. like part was just like, <laughs> like it was it was like this is inauguration day man we're about to take an oath like and and that was the first thing and he didn't mean it out of malice he was a nice man it's just that was the first thing that came out and then he turned to me and he said congratulations on winning congress because he thought i was saying <laughs> and okay. and it was like so oh, we call microaggressions microaggressions <laughs> yeah so you know those are there's a lot of things that drove me to run for office but that that was one of the things where i was like he's so lonely <laughs> find yeah, friends for ron yeah. yes <laughs> that should be a hashtag yeah <laughs> ron needs friends run for office um i'm gonna try to get to as many questions as we can uh we have one coming in from trin who's also a fellow californian it, it, within the communities um there are I think across all the Asian communities, there are pockets of, of uh, members, maybe usually older ones, who are just really afraid of drawing attention. In this instance that I'm aware of was in you know California, where like seven shops were rammed into by a car and all the glass broke. And um, the local, uh, I think the local government or authorities wanted to label it a race crime or a hate crime. Um, but there was resistance to proceeding with that kind of uh, label or path rather and be perceived by you know society at large that we're you know that we're we're calling ourselves victims and, and things like that so 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 I'm enemies and so in terms of when something is happening in my community there is pushback from um, other Vietnamese people who do not want the authorities to come in and help they do not want the authorities to call it a hate crime and that we are being targeted specifically, like they'll say like, oh, it's just, you know, some other random thing that's happened coincidentally that seven Vietnamese shops have been targeted. Um, and so like, my, I guess my question is how, how can we help to help others overcome that fear um, of reprisal of calling ourselves target of hate crimes or even asking for that help when we are being targeted? And, and, on top of having personal conversations to assuage that fear, is there anything we can do at a higher level um, to help address some of some of these kind of concerns and fears that set us back from getting the help that we need? You know, I think that there is a lot of fear in our all of our respective communities um, where uh, folks have a fear of being labeled as a victim, um, and and this is, I believe, what Trey is talking about. Yes. She's yes. there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so, um, so one of the things that, you know, uh, I guess this is a little bit more personal on, on my part, but um, my own family, you know, uh, had a very large fear of um, having me labeled as a child uh, sex abuse victim. Um, and so, you know, this is something that happened in my school and they didn't want to rock the boat. They didn't want to draw attention to um, what happens to me. Um, and this is very cultural and something that you know brought on to me a lot of pain. And I think that um, once I tell folks about how it affected me, um, you know, I think that it became very clear that you know even to my parents that 
the silence was more hurtful um, because I felt um, that, you know, in a lot of ways, I know this is like, okay, I felt in a lot of ways that, um, you know, they must've thought that I was broken, they were ashamed, um, that I was dirty or that they didn't want to acknowledge um, that, you know, I needed help or anything like that. You know, they just like, we never discussed it at home. We never talked about it anymore. And we never, um, and because my parents on their part were trying to protect me, right? And I think that there is a, there's a disconnect in, in the thought and in the feeling and in the action. Right. And like for for my parents, they thought that if we were, um, you know, they wanted to give me normalcy. They wanted to give me um, my life without having to constantly talk about something that had happened to me. Um, and they wanted to basically make it look like and seem like it never happened. Right. And that's their way of protecting me. But um, and, and I think that a lot of times, like our communities feel that way, right? That this is their way of protecting our community. This is their way of also not, you know, becoming the victim, right? And not saying it out loud will make it so that it's not true or it's not happening. And I think that, um, you know, for my parents, uh, they always had that perspective and we talk about it now and I understand their goodwill, um, but I also talk to them about the fact that um, I took it, even at, like I was a child and I took it as in, I wasn't worth fighting for, right? And that I took it as like, I didn't want to acknowledge it because they didn't, they wanted like, you know, their daughter to be, you know, different. And, 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 and they wanted things to look normal, but I was not normal ever again, you know? And, and so they never talked about, you know, they never talk about my suicide attempts. They never talk about, you know, um, help getting me, um, you know, any kind of uh, counseling. They never talked about any of those things because acknowledging that I needed help meant that it happened. And I think that, you know, that is more of like, an, like all of it's more of like a analogy of what's going on in the larger, like, you know, macro universe of our communities but you know this is kind of like a micro example of where you know there's good intentions on why and I think it's really important on understanding because once now as an adult I, I I can forgive them for what I felt like was one of the biggest hurts of my life um, of their not acknowledging and not helping and not you know supporting the way that I wanted them to because they didn't understand to you know, and also, you know, they were trying their best, right? Like, I think like there, there's a part of me that now understands that, that they were trying to help me, not hurt me, but I felt hurt and not helped. And I think that, you know, there's, there's um, that within our community. Oh, it, it does. I think, um, you, you know, <laughs> this issue isn't necessarily something that we can organize around in terms of, you know, legislate or take some action against. It's, it's a personal experience. It's a, it's a shared experience in a lot of ways. And, and it kind of boils down to, uh, you know, these, these emotions on adjusting in the country and, and cultural influences and, and generational gaps. And, and it's just a lot of, you know, like you mentioned before, a lot of visibility, a lot of being open mm -hmm. experiences. Um, I, I really thank you for sharing your experience because I also have been, um, 
I guess you can say a victim of, of uh, sexual abuse. Um, and so I think, you know, one of the things I, I find power in is, is existing as I am as openly. And, and the more we encourage people to do that, then the more honest conversations and productive conversations we can have about like, listen, you know, we can come through the other side, um, overcome that anticipatory anxiety of what could happen if you do speak up and, and if you do take it head on. Um, and that the only way forward, you know, is to not be quiet about it. And, and, and as much as it's, it's uncomfortable that if we are all speaking openly about it and that we can all get through it together and be there for each other, then, and that at least can help people work through that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing, Tran. Um, yeah. And I, I do, for my part, think that there is a lot of shame associated with in the Asian community and a lot of silence, um, both in terms of what happens in our families and what happens outside in the world. And, um, and I think it takes courage and vulnerability to step into that discomfort and, and risk upsetting people. And I'm sorry that happened to you. I think we have time for one last question. Ken, do you want to unmute yourself? Are you still sure. with us? Oh, hey, Ken. Yeah, I'm still here. I don't know how to follow that up uh, because I was just, thank you for being vulnerable. Also, thank you. I guess I'll add, I don't really have much to add except, uh, you know, I've made a lot, we've all thought about a lot of things during quarantine and you've made me think more seriously about the need to kind of, uh, the need to kind of more actively be a voice or try to be a voice. I'm, I live in Harlem, I'm on the community board, do all that stuff, but I also went to school in Poughkeepsie, served on, you know, I've, long story short, my world has been between Poughkeepsie and Harlem. And I was born in Harlem, but I also know how New York State operates. And for the first time, like in my life, you've kind of allowed me to see a vehicle for impact that is a natural extension of spaces I'm already a part of. And you've kind of encouraged me to think more seriously about what, it might look like to explore opportunities of getting more engaged in those areas. So, I mean, I just wanna shout you out. I also wanna add from a black and um, Asian, Asian American perspective, mentor of mine who also went to my alma mater, she, black and Chinese, um, she organized a trip uh, across China, starting in Hong Kong, ending in Shanghai, 13 day trip. It was for, it was for uh, Asian, um, it was it was for uh, it was for Chinese black and Chinese and um, black folks. I was part of the kind of black folk contingent, but um, it was an opportunity to explore a space I'd never been to. But more importantly, connecting with folks in Chinatown who could speak to the historical context of allyship, could speak to kind of solidarity that had kind of waned or been lost in terms of the narrative over time. And so it gave me a deeper appreciation for the history of that relationship and the need and the desire to continue to cultivate and strengthen that relationship. Um, I know those are all statements. My question was about getting more involved and you kind of spoke to that. So I thought I'd take a second to just say thank you. I think that's a beautiful note to wrap up on. Yulene, I wanna thank you so much for making the time to be with us and for all the work that you do for our community and the larger community um, and, you know, giving them hell up in Albany. 
Thank so, you for giving us all a cool place to go to, a little <laughs> bit of a political home and a, uh, and a conversation that we always need to have. So thank you. So thank you. So, and then I would be remiss if I didn't say to remember to get your absentee ballots for the June 23rd Democratic primary and vote for Yuli and donate to the campaign. So I will send all those links out and thank you so much and good luck with the uh, your press conference. Have a great day. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you.